Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Be a better Bitcoiner by learning about the economics and technology of Bitcoin. Today, I've got an interview with Kalle Rosenbaum, author of Grokking Bitcoin. But before we get into the interview, a quick announcement. As I mentioned recently, I'm looking to partner with advertisers for this podcast to make this a sustainable venture going forward. I want to make it clear that I'm looking to partner with reputable and ethical businesses that I believe provide a product or service that my listeners can benefit from. So with that said, I'm pleased to announce a new ongoing sponsor for the podcast, Kraken. So a quick word for the sponsor, Kraken. Over my years in Bitcoin, I've been impressed with the way Kraken operate in terms of offering strong security and acting ethically in the space under Jesse Powell's principled leadership. They're one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges and they're consistently rated the best with a high quality platform offering the best liquidity in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support and I found it extremely fast to go through the KYC process and as an individual. On the institutional and business solution side, they're very popular with institutions too, ranging from funds and asset management to trading firms to crypto businesses. They offer the highest available API rate limits and there's a Kraken OTC desk. Kraken offer five fiat currencies and also offer margin and futures trading. So to learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. So with that said, on to the interview. Color. Welcome to the show, mate. I've had a chance to read your book, and I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm very pleased to be here with you on your excellent show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so look, I've had the chance to read your book, and you know, so I went and bought it. I saw it, and I also listened to your appearance on Noted with Pierre and Michael as oh. well. And yeah, so I had a chance to read the book. I thought it was fantastic, and I thought, yeah, I've got to get you on, and we can talk about it. And you know, Because one thing with this book is... It might be seen as like, a, oh, that's only for developers, when really theme I try to bring with my podcast is we all want to educate, we want to become better Bitcoiners, and we want to learn more about the economics and the technology and kind of users have a duty to try and improve their own knowledge. And your book is fantastic for that. So I guess um, just while the, just for the listeners, I would say a few comments here. I think the diagrams in the book are really really key. They're really good. Uh, I think it's well-structured in terms of like how you – kind of build the book together and it's quite informative and it's I think it's reasonably concise for the amount of stuff you cover but that said it's quite dense so I've, I've gone through one reading but I'm probably gonna have to do another reading just because there's a lot of different concepts that you can sort of pull together even for someone who's been around for you know years now um, but look let's let's talk let's get a little bit of background on you just for the listeners um, those of those of them who don't know you so well tell us a little about yourself yeah um I'm 45 years old. Um, I've been working for as a software developer, a Java developer, for 20 plus years now. Uh, and I got into Bitcoin in 2013. I, I always been a fan of uh, grassroots mo- movements like Linux and stuff like that, BitTorrent. Um, so, um, so Bitcoin was pretty uh, interesting to me from the b- very beginning. Um, but it took me a while to to uh, to understand the technology uh, because I'm 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 not a cryptographer. I don't I didn't know much about distributed systems uh, or anything like that. So uh, it was a pretty steep learning curve for me. And the resources uh, available back then were well mostly developer focused. Uh, well, I am a developer, but 
I prefer visual explanations uh, before digging into code. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, and I, I started my, I, well, finally, I, I kind of grokked Bitcoin and started my own consultancy, uh, trying to uh, see if I could make a living off of Bitcoin. And uh, it worked out pretty well. And uh, about two and a half years ago, I was contacted by, uh, by a publisher called Manning Publications. And they asked me if I wanted to write a book about uh, blockchain. <laughs> and uh, I, w- I answered them back and said I would be delighted to write a book about Bitcoin. Because I'm a bit of a maximalist. Very uh, nice. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, so we, we talked back and forth a few times. And uh, I also wanted to make the book uh, available open source. So it's going to be available open source. It's written in the contract and uh, it's ready for publish now, the open source version, but it's coming in the next few weeks. So keep your eyes open. It's a great thing that some of these books have been open sourced. I know Andreas Antonopoulos' famous book, uh, Mastering Bitcoin, was also open sourced. Jimmy Song's Programming Bitcoin book is also open sourced. So that's very much in line with the Bitcoiner ethos. Another point I just wanted to highlight just for the listeners, I thought this is a great point. I actually tweeted this out recently. It was David Harding's foreword in your book, and he mentions how Bitcoin needs books like Rocking Bitcoin, but it also needs an active group of users who read those books and come to understand the technical principles on which... Bitcoin is built. And so he's saying those who read this book will understand how the system prevents cheating and will be able to help ensure that future changes preserve that essential feature and its many benefits. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could uh, uh, make formulations like that myself. (laughs) Uh, He's he's a very good writer, David Harding, and uh, I agree with every word. Uh, Bitcoin needs an active group of users who actually understand the system and can raise flags when uh, bad, bad proposals emerge. It's, uh, it's, it's key for Bitcoin's, uh, for Bitcoin's uh, security. Yeah, for example, uh, we want to we make sure that, uh, that the supply of Bitcoin doesn't grow more than we, what we signed up for. And also uh, all sorts of, like, for example, the 2x SegWit2x uh, proposal that floated around. People who don't understand the fundamentals of, of Bitcoin will be easy targets for scammers and deceivers. <laughs> yeah, they want your Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess, and I think uh, later in the book, or maybe we can get into this later, you, you talk about the, the way that forks can be activated. And yes. the, um, the, I think the listeners will appreciate in the, you know, if you listeners go and get the book, you'll see there's a section about how things can be signaled or how a fork can reach a, a, a locked in state. So that's also really cool. Um, so Carla, let's, let's talk a little bit about what was your process in making the book? Uh, it was pretty straightforward. Uh, the first few rounds of uh, uh, draft chapters were horrible, of course. Um, <laughs> I, writing is rewriting. I, yes, it is definitely. So I, um, I, it, it usually went like this. I, I wrote a, a draft chapter, and I showed it to to my development editor at Manning, and uh, they had also one uh, uh, a pedagogy guru there called his name was Bert Bates. So I talked to them about each chapter and they gave me feedback and I you know sat down again with it and rewrote it <laughs> and then we went up on to the next chapter. Uh so it's and it, that that process took about one and a half year. 
and then after that we had the uh, we had this uh, production phase where we do copy editing and proofreading and I had an illustrator redoing redoing all my images because my original images were uh, pretty ugly, but they were informative but ugly. <laughs> and the, the illustrator right. the illustrator made a terrific job at uh, improving my images, so I'm very pleased with them. Another interesting aspect there is around curation. How did you decide what was important to be included, and what do you not include because it's unnecessary technical detail? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I, I didn't have a process for it or anything like that. You just uh, to, what what I felt was necessary for the reader to understand. If it's not necessary right. for the reader to understand, it's it's not in the book. And I, I also try not to speculate on on the future of Bitcoin or write about upcoming technologies that, like Taproot, for example, uh, stuff like that. I don't I don't speculate on on possible future technologies. I do mention Lightning a few times, but but that's actual, that's actual technology live today. What about the process of technical review? Did you have any, uh, bit, like, for example, did David Harding review any of it or did any other Bitcoin developers do some technical review? That's that's one of the things that I, I regret about the book, that I didn't en- engage a more knowledgeable person than me uh, early on uh, because we could have caught some errors uh, earlier in the process. So... It's not. It's not really technically reviewed by, like people like David Harding, uh, but it's uh, it's reviewed by ordinary readers, but not not from not with a not from technical expertise. Unfortunately, I I, I regret that, but I, I'm still confident that the book is accurate enough because I ask a lot of questions for so you know I I just don't write this by heart. I look everything up thoroughly, so. Uh, and and when I see when I'm in doubt, I, I ask questions on Stack Exchange or, or on Twitter or Great. Yeah. So look, in terms of the split of the book, it might be interesting to just actually talk through a couple of the the topics as well. So one of them I th- I was thinking it would good would be valuable for my listeners is what is cryptographic hashing and you know the different types of uh, uh, resistance, right? So you've got the pre image resistance and so on. Could you outline a little bit of that for the listeners? Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> yeah, uh, cryptographic hash functions are are uh, you know a very key component in Bitcoin. I mean, everything in Bitcoin relies on cryptographic hashing being secure. So, cryptographic hash, hash a cryptographic hash function is a function that takes one input and gives one output. And uh, if you if you in, if the input input can be anything, it can be any string. Uh, so, if you input hello, it will output a thirty two bit. A 32-byte value, a 32-byte string of data. And each time you input hello, it will output the exact same uh, uh, output, which is the hash. The output is the hash. Uh, So hello will give you the hash A. If you you, uh, input uh, hello world instead, it will output a totally different hash, uh, for example, B. If you modify the input just a little bit, the output will look completely different. And you can't run this function backwards. You can't you can't start with a hash and easily find an input that will produce this hash. So it's a one-way function. So the only known way of finding an input that matches an, a, a specific output is trial and error. 
And since the output is uh, 32 bytes, which is 256 bits, you have 2 to the power of 256 bits. 2 to the power of 256 tries. Trial and error is the only way to to find a matching input. An input is also called an input for a specific hash is called a pre-image. And there are s- several uh, different types of properties. So like resistance, yeah. That yes, yeah. So so you need uh, uh, you need a pre-image resistance, second pre-image resistance, and collision resistance. And I'll t- if you want to, I can talk a little bit about them. Yeah, that would be great. I think the yeah. listeners would come out from that. Yeah. So uh, pre-image resistance. That's when you have and that's when you have a hash, for example, A, and you want to find an input that, that produces that hash, a pre-image. And then you have second pre-image resistance. That's when you actually, you have a hash and you also know one pre-image of that hash. So it's, it could be hello, for example. So you know a hash A and you know the word hello as an input. And then your task is to find another different input that also produces the hash A. So that's second pre-image resistance. You need you want to find a second pre-image. And then you have collision resistance. Uh, collision resistance makes it hard to find two different inputs that produce the same output, regardless of what that output is. So it can be any output, just the, the, only, uh, the only thing you look for are two pre-images that will produce the, the same output. So that's that's our three variants of this uh, pre-image resistance, if you will. Another really cool thing with that is the uh, pre-image resistance. That's a concept that kind of comes up multiple times, right? So, for example, people who are trying to learn about lightning, they will know that the hash time lock contract there is also dependent on this idea of pre-image resistance because Absolutely. what it's saying is I I generate this secret and I create the hash and you are not allowed to spend it unless you unless I give you the pre-image and obviously for security it's it has to be difficult for you to generate to you know kind of brute force or find that what was my actual pre-image so yes. that's a quick example there and I think another cool area that I I, I found it very fascinating and perhaps a little bit of a a walk down memory lane of like the different transaction types so do you want to just tell us a little bit about what are some of the common transaction types and what was common back in the early days you know say the address is starting with one um and then through to some of the newer types yeah yeah i can talk a bit about that uh in the very beginning uh people sent each other money to uh to, uh, to a public key so the first the first transaction sent money to to an explicit public key. So in the output of a transaction, you said, if I want to send Stefan money, I would I would get your public key from you, and I will put the public key in the output, and then uh, I will publish this transaction. And then you can just spend it by providing your uh, uh, providing a signature in your input that spends my output. So that's pay to pay to public key. Uh, there were a few drawbacks with that because uh, first you reveal your public key early on before before you actually spend the, the money, uh, and also it takes quite a bit of space in the output, so the payer has to pay more for my my, my transaction has to pay more more for your Stefan's uh, security. 
And then, then came pay-to-public-key pay hash. That's another type of payment where you actually you don't, you don't reveal the public key in the output. Instead of the public key in the output, you put a, a, a hash of the public key in the output. So when I want to send you money, Stefan, I, I create a, a, a Bitcoin transaction with an output and I put the hash. You give me the, the, the hash of your public key and I put that hash into the output. And then what you need to do when you want to spend that money, you, you, uh, you put your public key in your input, and you, which matches the hash in my output. So you put your public key there and a signature in your input. That's the most common, commonly seen transaction still today, I think. And that's, that's the addresses that start with the one that you mentioned. Yeah. That's the address everybody is used to. And then I think it was in 2013, a new type of payment emerged called uh, pay-to-script hash. So that takes that a bit further. So instead, instead of just taking a hash of a public key, which is pretty static, it's not very, it's not very uh, versatile. Instead of that, you can, you can decide how you want to lock your money. So you create a script that will uh, secure your money and you hash that script and you give that script hash to me. And I take that script hash and put in my output. And I, 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 and I publish the transaction. So when you want to spend this later, you need to provide the script and the necessary uh, credentials for, for satisfying that script. So you, that could be a, a multi-sig script, for example, that, that requires two out of three signatures, for example. So, and that all of a sudden becomes very, very uh, flexible. It allows for a lot of different ways that you can set up the transaction. And yes. I think what you're also uh, explaining in the book is how, okay, so to the naive person who doesn't really understand Bitcoin, they, they might just think, oh, I just, it's like sending from my account to your account. But in reality, it's more like every time you're sending Bitcoin, it's like you are kind of melting down the gold and recasting those into, you know, different pieces. And yeah. each of those little pieces is what we refer to, obviously, as the UTXO. And each of those outputs, your un unspent transaction outputs, then form the inputs to the new transaction. And I suppose one another thing that you explain in the book, as I understand it, then, is it's that each of those outputs has a certain like encumbrance placed upon it and you it's sort of certain conditions that you must satisfy in terms of bitcoin script before you may spend those utxos or before you may spend those outputs into some someone else exactly yes uh and to continue then uh, so so after this uh, pay to public pay to script hash type we uh, we got segwit in 2017 yay Excellent. And, yeah, excellent. And that uh, SegWit provides two new ways. Um, well, two new native ways of, of spending or paying. They, they are called uh, BEC32 addresses. And so instead of, there are two versions. Two versions. One is pay to witness public key hash. And one is wit pay to witness script hash. And they are similar to pay to public key hash and, and pay to script hash, but they are done slightly different. First of all, the addresses look different. Uh, they start with BC1Q today. The, uh, the actual 
the data in the input that you need to provide to to spend your money is not put it in in the same area of the transactions anymore. Uh, they are put in a structure in a different structure besides beside the more like an attachment to the transaction. So you move you move the transaction you move the credentials to 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 an external structure if you will, and that uh, uh, that solves a few problems. Uh, more, most notably with uh, transaction malleability. Transaction malleability is, is, uh, is, has been a huge problem in Bitcoin because uh, transaction malleability basically means that you, you, can, you can change a transaction just a tiny bit uh, without invalidating it. And you, you can't change the effect of the transaction. You can't change uh, what money it spends or where the money goes, but you can change, you can, you can make su- subtle, change, subtle changes to it. And that will cause its transaction ID, its hash, the transaction hash to change. But the transaction effect will be the same. And that causes a lot of problems when, when, you, when you build uh, smart contracts, like in Lightning, for example. Lightning is, depends on this uh, unman- unmalleability, if you will. <laughs> right. And uh, as I understand it, the, one of the problems is because the TX ID changes, and that may basically ruin downstream transactions that are referring to this transaction because you've exactly. changed the TX ID. Exactly. And that is why transaction malleability was a problem. And that's why SegWit helped. Well, that's why we wanted SegWit to help fix that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So look, I think the other thing with the different, so there's different SegWit versions as well. So there is SegWit version 00. And then now with Taproot and so on coming, that might go up to z- version 01. Um, so, can you just tell us a little bit about zero zero? Yeah. So, first of all, uh, yeah, uh, one important feature of SegWit is that uh, the script is versioned. So, each output, each SegWit output contains a version now, and that means that, and the first, uh, the, the 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 currently existing version is zero zero, as you said. But. Uh, with this version, it will be possible to upgrade the script language to another language uh, with a soft fork. And that's very powerful because new, uh, new. if I'm an old node and I, I only know about the uh, version zero scripts, and I, if I receive a transaction that pays money to or that spends a version one script, I will just accept it. And that makes it uh, possible to do script upgrades via soft fork so that we won't uh, split the, the blockchain when during such upgrades. So uh, the native SegWit types that we see today and the nested uh, SegWit uh, payment types we see today, uh, they are version zero. And then there's a proposal now from Peter Wool and some more people that introduces taproot and that's that's a, a an upgrade to the to the script system that will make signature aggregation within within uh, within single inputs possible and it will enable uh, schnorr signatures I, I i won't go more into detail on on schnorr because i'm not uh, very I don't know that. Yeah, too, these are quite well. these are yeah. quite technical topics. So uh, yeah, totally appreciate that. But but a very a very important feature of this taproot system is that it makes uh, complex scripts indistinguishable from uh, simple scripts. So every script every every script that's 
uh, spent in the in the in the most normal way if everybody agrees in a contract the script the the, the payment will look just like a, a pay to public key hash script it's very important for for uh, privacy fantastic and i think another interesting thing you chat about in the book is this um when doing upgrades uh that as you mentioned, the, the backwards and forwards compatibility. And so, because with Bitcoin, the idea is the network needs to stay in consensus, ideally. Uh, and if an old node cannot understand a transaction from a new node, uh, it might cause a big problem, right? And yes, so, exactly. You, and then in your book, you explain how you sort of need it both ways. We needed both backwards compatibility and forwards compatibility. So, can you just explain a little on that? Yeah, so uh, I hear a lot of people saying that uh, a soft fork is a backwards compat- compatible upgrade, but I- I'm not. Sh- uh, I don't know why they use that terminology because when I read about backwards and forwards comp- compatibility, forwards compatibility means that old software accepts uh, data from new software. So if a uh, so and that's what happens in in a soft fork. So if a, in a soft fork, for example, when we when SegWit was in, introduced, if a SegWit node produces a block, a SegWit block, an old node needs to understand or accept that block in order to keep everybody on the same chain. Chain, and that's what I call forward uh, compatibility. And that's that's the hard part. The easy part in an upgrade is backwards compatibility, which means that new new software will accept data from old software so that's just a matter of an if clause in the code like if not segwit block do it the legacy way otherwise do it in this new shiny new way so that's a forward and backward compatibility and it's very important for bitcoin to keep changes forwards compatible to not split the network in the book, you explain how nodes communicate and they pass on transactions. And I think this is another example of where having some deeper understanding of what's happening underneath the hood gives people a better idea about what's coming with some of these upgrades and potential ideas of up, uh, of um, new ways of doing things. And a quick example is Erlay, right? So there's this new idea of uh, trying to reduce the amount of... Um, uh, network kind of usage by the node and in order to sort of help understand that we have to sort of understand well what's what's going on right now how do nodes yeah. communicate right now and in your book you actually explain here there's like a three-step process right so you've got inf where it's sort of saying oh hey i've got you know this tx i've got this particular transaction and then um you can request it and say get data and then they will tx they'll actually send you that transaction yeah it's this kind of networks are called gossip networks, uh, and I think it's an excellent name because it actually tells you exactly how this network <laughs> works. Uh, because it's it's a network of nodes, and each node nodes each node new knows a few other nodes, but they don't know all nodes. So it's a network of nodes. A node, uh, maybe we should explain what a node actually is. A, no- a node is a piece of software running on a computer, and it's usually Bitcoin Core. The software is usually Bitcoin Core, and it runs on a computer. And it this this software is connected to other nodes. And uh, as I said, not 
a node doesn't know every every other node, so uh, they will just talk to the nodes they know, and those nodes will talk to the nodes that they know, and so on, until information propagates throughout the whole network. So it's called a gossip network. Excellent. And I think the other thing I was interested to also talk about is how upgrades were done in the past and how they can how are they signaled? And then what was some of the history around whether they were kind of signaled or supported? And some of the language around that <laughs> was um, changed. It, it shifted, right? So at one point, it was seen as like, oh, it's voting. The miners are voting. Uh, yeah. And then I think the understanding evolved a little more there to say, no, no, it's actually they're more like they're signaling readiness. Yeah, exactly. So uh, some early upgrades used uh, version bumping. They just in- increased the block version uh, with, an, with, a, with one uh, to signal that they uh, would support this new feature. For example, uh, I think check lock time verify, for example. Uh, that's, a, that's, an, uh, that's an opcode in, in the Bitcoin scripting language. Check lock time verify was introduced by in- increasing the block version and so miners, miners who supported this new feature, this new opcode, would would use this higher version number in their blocks, and pe- people could then count the number of blocks that supported this new feature. And when we have a, had an overwhelming majority of of the of the blocks supporting a certain feature, we said, okay, it's it seems like. Uh, most miners are on board, or it seems like most nodes are on board. Actually, that's what people think. Uh, so, when we had ninety-five percent or so, uh, we started rejecting blocks that doesn't uh, uh, that aren't valid, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, but but that signaling is just what it is. That's just signaling. That's not. There's nothing. Miners can lie as much as they want, and they can game the system in different ways. I, uh, it's so we, we don't really know how how broad the adoption of a certain feature is in an upgrade. We we can't really know for sure. We can only guess, and that's why we yeah. So so uh, and that's that's also uh, and and it and we can also we, we can only see how what the supposed uh, miner, we, we we can only see what the miner signals. We can't see what the users are signaling or what the users want. We can only see what the miners are signaling, and they can lie, and they don't usually don't represent users as in general. And that's what happened in Segwit when we introduced Segwit. We uh, uh, which wasn't signaled by just f- uh, increasing the increasing the block version it was signaled by so-called version bits that's another way of signaling but uh, what we saw there was that miners only only 30 percent of the blocks or so were signaling for for segwit uh, so it plateaued somewhere there and that was quite quite frustrating because uh, because it seemed like users wanted this segwit system but miners for some reason didn't and so we had we had so a few miners could veto veto uh, a system upgrade that most users wanted that the econo- economic majority wanted. Uh, of course, we we couldn't know for sure what the economic majority wanted, but but it kind of seemed like uh, 
users wanted this upgrade. Yeah, so actually just on that, could you just articulate just for the listeners, what is the economic majority? Yeah, that's that's the that's the majority of the Bitcoin economy. The big Bitcoin economy economy is everyone who has uh, who participates in in Bitcoin in some way. I have a little Bitcoin, so I I'm part of the, of the of the economy, and an exchange is a part of the economy. Economy and merchants are part of the economy, and miners are also part of the economy. Everyone involved in Bitcoin some somehow are part of the Bitcoin economy, and I'm not sure if there's a if there's a great uh, uh, def- definition of econo- economic majority, but let's say 95% of all the Bitcoin holdings want something, uh, want Se- SegWit, for example. That's that's then then you can safely say that you have an economic majority for for this SegWit upgrade. And I think the other interesting aspect that you bring up in the book is also how some of these things can be enforced in a certain way. So maybe before we get to that, it might just be interesting to talk about what powers does a node have versus what powers does a miner have, right? And so in the book, you explain how nodes are the ones who basically verify that a transaction or the block is valid and, you know, that there's not more than 21 million inflation, all that sort of thing. Um, But whereas miners have the power to either you know, vary the chronology of the transaction and also the power to try to, you know, an individual miner could try to not broadcast your or to not include your transaction into the block. Uh, But obviously there's a bit of a game theory there that if one miner doesn't, then another miner might have the incentive. And so I think the other way, the other part there is that if the nodes don't agree with what the miners do, the miners can be at risk of basically mining on a chain that has no value and i think yeah, that's how the threat got enforced correct yeah exactly uh so uh i i have a bitcoin node at home in my basement uh that that i trust so th- this bitcoin node will verify all the rules that i agree with i install that software and I know that that software uh, implements a certain set of rules that I, for example, the, the, the inflation rule that, you know, you can't make more than 12 and a half new Bitcoins in each block. That's a, yeah. that's a, a rule that's very dear to me. Uh, so I, I, I make sure that I run the correct software on my, on my computer. And if, in, if a miner violates that rule, I will drop the block. I will not be interested in his block. Uh, and if enough people don't agree with that block, uh, that miner's block will be, uh, you know, uh, uh, thrown away by the economic majority, and and the the miner will be without reward for it. The miner will lose its reward. So the miner have a strong incentive to to uh, uh, obey the rules of the economic majority. And that's that's something that really uh, that that really uh, that people really got to understand during the Segwit drama, because uh, uh, yeah, I think Shaolin Fry uh, published this uh, uh, dev list email where he explained how how users can actually enforce uh, Segwit to. To, to become adopted and that that was an eye-opener for 
I think a large chunk of of the Bitcoin community because uh, there there was there was a strong feeling that that miners could decide. There was a strong uh, notion that 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 miners could decide the rules, but they can't decide the rules. That that became very clear during the Segwit upgrade. Can you also talk a little bit about the difference then between the soft fork and a hard fork? Yeah, yeah. A soft fork is is like we talked about earlier a forward compatible change in the in the rules in the set of consensus rules that's how i define it at least uh, there are several different de- definitions of a fork for example uh, i i try to be uh, precise in that about that in the book so i define a i define a fork as a as a change of the consensus rules and i define the uh, a soft fork as a forward compatible change of the consensus rules. For example, SegWit is su- such a change. And a, a block size increase, for example, would be a, a not forwards compatible change because an old node would not accept a bigger block. So that, that wouldn't be forwards compatible. So that would be a hard fork then. Uh, sorry, what was the question here again? Yeah, no, just to yeah, just to articulate some of the differences around that. And I think uh, one clever analogy that I've heard, uh, and you use it in the book as well. I think Andreas, I've heard actually. I think I saw. I think it was Andreas. I saw when he came to Sydney and he gave a talk, and he gave that exact example of this idea of the restaurant, and yeah. there are vegetarians yeah. in the restaurant, and every yeah. it's kind of using that idea that every vegetarian can eat a vegan meal, but not every yeah. vegan will eat a vegetarian meal. Yeah, exactly. I asked Andreas if I could use that example. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I got it from him. So huge thanks to Andreas for that. I thank him in the acknowledgments of, of the book for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you mentioned it even on the page. Go, go on. Yeah, so that that's a great example. I mean, imagine a, a vegetarian restaurant uh, and the customers come there. Uh, they are usually vegetarian people. And if the, vegetar- if, if the restaurant starts serving meal, meat, uh, the the guests won't be able to eat there anymore. They won't accept the, their meals, their blocks. Uh, so that would be a hard fork. So they can't they can't go to that restaurant anymore. While if the restaurant starts serving vegan meals, uh, the guests can still go there to have their dinner uh, because the restaurant uh, uh, obeys the rules of the guest. Uh, that's a great analogy with uh, with how how uh, soft fork and hard forks work, and the guests are ov- obviously uh, nodes, and uh, and uh, the the meals served are blocks, and the restaurant is a miner. Yeah, excellent. Um, another interesting idea that you touch on in the book a little bit is uh, compression of transactions. So there are some savings that come to a person who is using the new type, right? BESH32 addresses as opposed to the old school addresses. Uh, can you chat a little bit about what, what that is? Where, where is some of that saving coming from? I'm actually not sure what you're referring to because we, there are no, there, there, there's not much savings with SegWit. In fact, in some cases, uh, a SegWit spending will, will uh, take a few more bytes than a, than a legacy spending. But uh, so, so I'm not sure exactly what you are. Oh, okay. To. Yeah, I think but, it's it's from um, when, like, even when I use say blockstream.info, and it'll it'll show, you know, when you search a certain TX ID, and it will show, oh, okay, this transaction could have saved even more by upgrading to the native SegWit. Um, 
It might be from a context of the like V bytes versus normal bytes. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can't say you 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 can't say bytes, but you can save on fees. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so, as I said earlier, uh, SegWit moves uh, the credential data from the actual transaction and puts it into an attachment. And when you when you pay transaction fees, you pay it. You pay a certain fee per byte usually, but in um, in SegWit we give us we give a, a discount on on this uh, attachment that we call the witness. So witness bytes are cheaper than uh, uh, base transaction bytes. So it, so uh, you get seventy five percent discount on on witness bytes. So in in order to lower your transaction fees, you can you can uh, uh, you can start using SegWit to move your uh, credentials credential data f- from the transaction into the witness in order to get seventy five percent fee discount on those byte on those bytes. Right. So that's that's how you can save using SegWit. One challenge we find with Bitcoin books and material is that things just quickly go out of date. Do you feel that the, this book will go out of date within a certain period of time, and then you you know you'll just have to do updated versions, or what's your sense of it there? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. Um, I tried, I act- actively tried to not uh, refer to specific tools or specific s- pieces of so- software. Well, I can't, uh, I I can't, uh, I cannot not. Uh, mention Bitcoin Core, of course, and and use that as, as an example. But but I I don't uh, use actual wallets or screenshots of of uh, wallets to explain stuff. I, I make up imaginary wallets instead uh, that will probably last longer than actual wallets. Because if people start installing the the actual wallet, that uh, if if I would use an actual wallet in the book. And they install the same wallet, and it will look completely different. That will be very confusing for them. So uh, I I try not to uh, to actually uh, talk about talk about ex- t- existing tools. I talk about concepts instead. Wise and, choice. But, yeah, <laughs> but I do, I have some numbers in there. For example, uh, uh, a little uh, a little table of numbers for the current state of the Bitcoin network, for example. Uh, there are 250,000 transactions, blah, blah, blah. But I, I make sure to, to write out that this is just a snapshot of, of how it looks right now. So as a writing, blah, blah, blah. Excellent. Just generally doing education. Have you? Have you, I suppose as a Bitcoin, you know, uh, working in Bitcoin for for a while, have you done other education seminars or things like that? And how how has that been for you in terms of you know the difficulty of teaching Bitcoin? I haven't done much of it. I have done some some educational sessions, uh, which is very fun. I like that very much. Uh, I prefer to do it with a whiteboard only. Uh, so I. It's me and a whiteboard. And uh, what was the question again? Yeah, I was Sorry. just saying, what's your experience around that? And have you found that difficult compared to writing, where you can sort of sit down and properly lay out your thoughts? Yeah, I am uh, I'm better in writing than in uh, speaking, uh, as you probably can tell. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 need, I need time to, to, uh, to uh, formulate, formulate myself uh properly 
And that's why that's part of why it took so long to write this book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I prefer writing in front of in front of uh, speaking. But in front of a small group, uh, preferably in Swedish, uh, I'm very I, I find it very pleasant to to uh, educate. What's next for you? Are you going to be looking at another book to write or are you going to be continuing with Bitcoin consulting? What's your feel there? I am probably going to continue. I'm working half time today with consulting uh, and I'm pretty pleased with that. And me and my wife are also working on a on a Bitcoin wallet, a, a two or three multisig Bitcoin wallet. And I can't tell you much about it yet because it's still <laughs> on the on the drawing board, more or less. Uh, we don't even have a proof of concept or anything like that. But it's it's going to be, a, a, we, we try to make a multi-sig wallet that's super easy to use, single purpose. Uh, so we only do two or three multi-sig where you use offline computer, an, off, an offline computer and an online computer. Uh, so that's that's what we're working on for fun when we have time over and uh, as for another book, I'm not sure. Uh, <clears throat> maybe maybe I, I, I'm starting to think about something around lightning, but but uh, I, I don't know anything yet. I, I don't right now. I don't feel like writing another book. But maybe after summer or half a year or something like that, maybe I will uh, get back to writing. I don't I don't know actually. Uh, right now, I just want to you know. Uh, kill some time <laughs> it's quite a big endeavor it must be like it just must be a big endeavor to really go and write so much and yeah it's fair enough to uh want to focus on something else for a little while um okay so look i think that's um hopefully that's been uh, enticing for some of my listeners and now they're interested to go and actually get the book and learn more can you just tell the listeners where they can find you and where can they buy the book yeah so uh if they want to talk to me, they can uh, they can uh, at me at uh, Kalle Rosenbaum on Twitter. So K A L L E R O S E N B A U M on Twitter. And if they want to get get uh, their hands on this book, they can go to Manning.com and search for Grok and Bitcoin, or they can go to Amazon.com or any big uh, bookstore to get it it's it's available pretty much worldwide fantastic all right well i think that's pretty much going to do it for us today so thank you for coming on the show today thank you very much stefan it was a pleasure uh i enjoyed it very much thank you very much i hope you found that informative and if you're interested to learn more about how bitcoin works definitely go check out grokking bitcoin also a reminder to check out my sponsor kraken the links are in my show notes on stefanlevera.com this is episode 77 if you want to inquire more about advertising or send me any feedback you can email me at stefanlevera at pm.me or you can find me on twitter at stefanlevera thanks for listening and i'll speak to you soon